You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with the healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am one of your hosts, Cameron Steinheimer, and I am the marketing manager here at Pacific Companies. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Doc Lounge podcast by Pacific Companies. Today is part of our Provider Perspective series. I'm your host, Stacey Doyle, Senior Director of Marketing at Pacific Companies. On this episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Jay Shaw. He is the medical, the Chief Medical Officer at Akita, and he's a physician leader in the treatment of hypertension. Um, hypertension currently affects one in two adults in America, so this is a topic that we're really interested in speaking with him about. Uh, Dr. Shaw is also a consultant with the Mayo Clinic. Um, I want to go ahead and welcome you, Dr. Shaw, and I would love to learn more about your background and how you entered into the medical profession. Right. Thank you so much for having me, Stacey. And um, yeah, so as you mentioned, so I'm a, I'm a cardiologist um, by training and background. I started my medical journey almost 20 years ago now at the University of Missouri in Kansas City and uh, did my medical school there. It was a great experience. City General Hospital, sort of very resource limited. It was really, uh, you know, interesting, exciting, kind of a, a cool place to be a medical student because you got to do so much and were given so much responsibility. And then I um, happened to, by luck or chance, got a residency spot in trauma medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is took my perspective about how to practice and think about medicine into a much bigger, broader lens because, you know, my colleagues at MGH were, you know, having come from just run an NGO in, you know, Africa for the WHO for the last five years, or the, my junior resident had invented a molecule and sold it to the government of Singapore and this crazy, really cool stuff. Uh, and so my, my perspective on what you can do in medicine really was uh, broadened at MGH. Then I did my clinical cardiology training at Washington University in St. Louis, which is a giant thousand bed hospital and huge catchment area and just a deep, rich, uh, broad clinical experience. So I really got sort of cut my teeth there. And, and then after training at these big places, I did something pretty unorthodox. I went and started my own practice from scratch in metropolitan Portland uh, with like two EKG machines and an MA and um, and just started from scratch. So there, you know, I and medical training doesn't really prepare you about starting a business, running a business, understanding how to do sort of cost analysis, how to purchase equipment, hire people, manage people. And that's what I learned, you know, in very quick and rapid succession. And so I got a really, you know, rich sort of background in both the business aspects of medicine, as well as just those first three to five years in after training in medicine, that's really where you learn how to be a, a really good clinical physician as you, because it's, you have no backup anymore. You have no backstop. So I got a lot of experience there and I really enjoyed it. And then the last three years I was at the Mayo Clinic, um, and I started there, uh, aortic disease program um, in their Arizona campus. So built that up and and uh, was quite exciting and fun. So, and then about two years ago now, I started looking for a different way to have an impact, you know, using all this sort of expertise I gained over the last decade in medicine, decade plus, and trying to have a broader impact or a different, you know, having impact in a different way on patients. And 
and people. And so I started looking for a way to do that and did this long exploration journey and ended up finding Actia as, um, as the company that really, you know, gave me a chance and it was a very exciting, um, opportunity. And I really enjoyed and have enjoyed the, the people, the team, the technology and what we're doing. And so I joined on as the chief medical officer. And so I sort of have brought, you know, all that clinical background training and, and real sort of real world experience to, to my role here at Actia. I love that. And and for physicians that are, you know, in our audience that might be interested, what exactly does a chief medical officer do? Yeah, well, it depends on the day. Um, but it's, I would say it depends a little bit also on the type of company uh, that you, that you are, are working for, if, if it is a, if it is a company, so to speak, rather than a healthcare organization. A healthcare organization have chief medical officers that serve more, more in an administrative, but medical role you know, managing physicians and, and the, the practice within that organization. But in corporations, I mean, I've spoken to, to chief medical officers for, let's say, MasterCard or JP Morgan. And in some of those um, uh, types of jobs, it's more of an occupational medicine job, more of, a, of how do we handle our employee, staff, health benefits? Like, how do we create some sort of workplace healthcare environment for, for, for their employees? But in in a health tech or a digital digital health role, I mean, I touch almost every part of the company other than operations. So commercial business development, um, frontline, deeply engaged with our BD team, research and development on the product side, um, product development itself, um, and, uh, and regulatory and quality. Um, so really a very broad and exciting, you know, breadth of, of activities. And that's really why I, one of the reasons I've really enjoyed working in Actia is that I get to be part of almost all of the company in different aspects. And that's probably different than if I had joined a very large sort of corporate strategic uh, type organization where I think the the lanes would be much narrow, uh, more narrow and more sort of fixed, um, um, yeah, less less diverse sort of opportunities for growth. Gotcha. That is that's really fascinating. I'm glad that you explained that the differences there um, between you know companies or if you're working at you know um, obviously a health system. Um, I would love to. I mean, obviously you've had great experience and and a very diverse background. Um, and I know that you treated I think over ten thousand patients. So I'd love to you know learn about you know what are some of the key things you've learned from from treating you know this this wide range of patients. Well, I would say there's several things. I mean, first, the first thing, and I learned this in the first few years of practice. I think probably most physicians probably have learned this by now if they are experiencing it in any significant way, which is um, you can be the have the best training, the best experience, the best mentors, the best you know you can be the smartest doctor in the room, uh, but there are always situations where um, where hubris is your enemy where thinking that you know how to manage everything is it will be a clear downfall uh, for you and your patient. And so that's what the first few years of practice are really all about, in my opinion, and understanding, you know, where the line is between what you know, what you think you know, and what you really don't know, and when to, when to ask for help, when to look outside yourself, and when to, you know, put your sometimes ego pride aside 
and say, in order for me to do my job to help this patient, I need to, I need to look somewhere else, or I need to send them somewhere else, or I need to ask somebody else, um, because I can't figure it all out. Because you, there are always those situations, and and you know, very few patients actually fit what's in the textbooks and what we learn in medical school and training. But that's the reality. So I learned that, um, and then I think the other thing that I, that I've really learned is that um, you know. The, for me, this is a personal learning, that the journey has always been sort of these different, very different, oftentimes stepping stones. But I've learned to not look at them as good or bad, or, uh, oh, that, that experience was really not great and a waste of time. Or, or when I was thinking about, you know, joining this company as in an in a industry type role, as to consider, oh, I'm walking away from clinical medicine. And that was, you know, how can I give that up? That's oftentimes people would ask me that. But the truth is, none of these sort of steps in my journey would have ever happened if the previous steps hadn't been there. So if I hadn't gone to Mass General, I don't think I would have ended up at fellowship at Washington University. If I hadn't done my fellowship, I don't think I would have been able to start my own practice in business. And if I hadn't done that, Actually, I don't think I would have been able to, you know, get, you know, an opportunity at Mayo Clinic. And if I hadn't done that, you know, so each one of these things leads to something else. And so oftentimes our pathway in medicine is very linear. That's how we see it. Medical school, residency, specialty training, practice, like bump, 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 one after another. But the truth is, of course, we know our life is not linear and our journeys are not linear. So, so, so really accepting that, being grateful for all those steps and every one of those experiences, because around the corner, in the way you may least expect it, you may be using something that you learned 15 years ago in a way that now really empowers you. And that's that's really what I've experienced in, in my career. I love that. That is such a interesting progression. And, and it's not, like you're saying, it's not always going to be as straight path like you think. So um, everything you're learning about helps you with your next role. Great advice there for physicians. Um, what, what, so now kind of just moving into, I know you obviously you are an expert within um, anything that's related to, you know, the heart and, and, and blood pressure. So love to hear, you know, why is tracking blood pressure so important to just to one's health? Well, first of all, it's rarely done. <laughs> that's the first thing. Um, you mentioned that hypertension is the one of, it is the most common disease in the world. 1.4 billion people in the world have it. 130 million people in the U.S. have it. It's growing at a rate of 9% per year. And global control rates are, wait for it, 20%. That means only 20% of people who have hypertension actually have it under control. In the U.S., it's not much better. It's 26%. So for a disease that is the most common in the world, that for which we have clear and easy and effective treatments, for which there's plenty of knowledge out there, and for which there are clear tools available for people to monitor and measure their blood pressure, despite all those things being put in place, we are really bad at managing hypertension. And the other thing that I think people often gloss over, even physicians and medical systems, 
is that hypertension is the primary input or high blood pressure is the primary input into the vast majority of diseases that kill people. And it is the primary modifiable input into that. Heart attack, stroke, uh, aneurysms, vision loss, kidney disease, diabetes, uh, erectile dysfunction, reproductive disorders, pregnancy-related hypertension. Um, even there are multiple cancers that now with therapies have interactions with high blood pressure. And there is such a clear and vast array of diseases that are impacted by high blood pressure that it's very important to think of high blood pressure not as just a risk factor, like the way that sedentary lifestyle and, you know, sort of obesity and things like people just consider them risk factors. And people, physicians, off, we often talk about hypertension as a risk factor that psychologically does not give it as much urgency as it should. Psychologically, it's just like, well, that's a risk. Something, it could happen in the future, probably not. But, but the truth is everyone, all of us, are going to die from one of those things. The vast majority of us are going to have one of those events, one of those issues, one of those reduced quality of life from all of these diseases. And the primary modifiable input into that into that disease is often high blood pressure. So it is so crucial. And, and so, and why getting to your question really is why, you know, why is it important to measure it is that a lot of the failings in hypertension care has to do with a lack of data, a lack of ability to even measure it. And if you don't measure it, how can you do anything about it? And that's the bottom line. What is the best way to measure it? And what are, obviously, you know, in your role as chief medical officer at Akita, how, how what is the best thing that, that um, you know, anyone listening can do? So, I mean, there are these technologies that have been around for 60 years of the blood pressure cuffs. Everybody's probably familiar with that. It's upper arm cuff. You have to put it on. You have to sit down. Your feet have to be on the floor. You're back against the chair. You have to breathe for five minutes, it has to be a quiet room, you have to have an empty bladder, you have to, you know, not have eaten, drank, smoked, exercised, or anything for 30 minutes. Should, kids shouldn't be around. All these different factors to take an accurate blood pressure measurement. Now you tell me, is that the environment that we all live in? Is that very fixed and, you know, con constrained situation and environmentally controlled? No. But that is the only way that blood pressure cuffs have ever been validated. So that is how we're supposed to take blood pressure measurements with cuffs. Now, the, the issue is, and one of the, one of the many uh, troubles with blood pressure cuffs, other than having to take it in this very controlled and type of environment, it only takes the measurement at one point in time. So you've done all that sort of work, you've sat and modified your lifestyle, you know, done all these things, but you get one measurement. And the truth is with blood pressure, just like every other physiologic parameter, it's constantly fluctuating. So you're getting one point in time, you'll get a measurement, but you don't know what is happening the rest of the time with your blood pressure pattern and, and, its, uh, and its fluctuations. And so that's really where, that's what Actia really has been working on is a way to passively, automatically, and simply measure blood pressures at many, many points throughout the day without you having to think about it or to sit in one prescribed position or environment. So you can start to see what that real pattern is. You can really start to understand the pattern. And 
more importantly, build a data set that's personalized to you. Your personal data set of your blood pressure pattern of that primary input into all of those diseases that we are all, you know, at very high risk for. What is your personal pattern, your personal? And that's really what we're working on is building that, you know, personalized data set that into which then we can look and derive insights that are more personalized and, and important. That sounds, that sounds really incredible. What, what, tell us a little bit about the technology that's behind Actia's, you know, this, this blood pressure monitoring device. So the technology was built, uh, developed in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland by our two co-founders um, at a very impressive sort of engineering think tank called CSEM. And they started doing this work almost 20 years ago now, uh, looking at optical sensors placed on the skin and trying to derive physiologic parameters from those sensors. Remember, this started in 2004, so before iPhones, before wearables, before watches, before any of this stuff. And they really developed the seminal sort of ideas about measuring, at first, measuring heart rate from these optical signals. So much of their work and patents are referenced uh, by all devices now that measure heart rate from these optical signals. So then they started, after they did that for a couple of years, they said, well, now we really understand heart rate. What else can we learn from these signals and what else can we look at? And they started looking at blood pressure. And that started a really a 18 year sort of odyssey for them of really trying to develop and understand these signals so that they could actually derive blood pressure. And they about five years ago got to the point where they had a, you know, they felt it was a commercially viable technology, spun it out into a company and, and we've been, you know, commercially available in Europe for almost two years now. And we have about 35,000 active users. And the way the technology works is it, it is a wearable. There's a little pod that sits on a bracelet on your skin and it has LED lights that shine the light into the skin and a reflection comes back to the optical sensor and it creates these waveforms. And many of these waveforms are analyzed in batches and using their proprietary algorithms, it delivers back a blood pressure measurement. And it's been proven to be accurate, as accurate as cuffs. And we have a lot of published data on all those things. And so that's how it does it. And because it has the footprint and ease of a wearable, but it's medical grade, you know, accuracy and quality, then, you know, it really delivers the, um, on the promise of really delivering sort of uh, continuous type blood pressure monitor with very little need for the user to do much other than to wear it. So cool. Is that, will that be available in the US soon? Yes, I mean, we're working with the FDA. We've been engaged with them now for over a year and we're working, uh, you know, through all the different sort of uh, regulatory milestones that need to be hit uh, to bring it to the US. So we anticipate, yes, it will be um, probably you know, at this point, probably still a year out or so. Amazing. Now, tell me, with all this data that you guys are collecting, how how is this going to be utilized? Or, or, or just tell us about data in, in general with with wearables. Well, first, let's, let's just talk a little bit about data privacy and security. So, um, because I think that's always top of mind, uh, especially these days. And so, first of all, our system is end-to-end -end encrypted and, uh, and lives... All the patient data, all your personal data lives only on your device and, uh, and your phone. We don't extract any personal information out of it. 
it's all de-identified in the cloud where the algorithm sits and it's encrypted end to end. So, and we adhere to the, what's called the GDPR standards, which are the highest, highest stringency standards for data security and privacy in the world. So we really pay a lot of attention to cybersecurity and data privacy. But I think getting to your point is that really, you know, in just in 18 months or so, and, uh, and with now growing set of users, but even from the beginning from zero, in just 18 months, we've accumulated a data set that is nearing 100 million data points and is growing ex in an exponential rate of about five to, at this point, five to six million data points per month of blood pressure. So we've accumulated within 18 months, the world's largest data set for blood pressure. And as we build layers around that core technology into our product, now we're starting to get annotated data from users. So uh, we're starting to get activity data. We're starting to get medication data, sleep-wake data. And so we're starting to annotate that data set and enrich it even further so that we can start to look in this giant data set at insights to say that, okay, what types of blood pressure patterns respond to exercise and activity? What type of... What type of uh, medication, um, you know, interactions or, or uh, what type of specific medications, you know, might someone, one person respond to better than another? And we can really start to dial in, you know, sort of personalized insights about blood pressure patterns. And that's just the first level. We have uh, probably at this point over 60 research partners across the world. And what we're doing with this data set is now we're extracting data from uh, electronic health records, outcomes data, biomarker data, imaging data, and starting to pull that into our data set and enriching our data set even further so we can start to get even more personalized about prediction. This type of blood pressure pattern is at a higher risk of stroke than this other one. Because we see clinically, all this happens all the time, we see a person who, two people, same age, have the same blood pressure in the office, let's just say 132 over 80. One of those people has a stroke when they're 60 years old and dies. The other person lives to 90. No problem if they die from a hip fracture or something else. Why does that happen? We don't know why they're same blood pressure in the office. They don't think they have high blood pressure. Why does that happen? We have no sense of the underlying mechanisms of why one person uh, you know, goes one direction and the other person goes another direction as it relates to blood pressure. So this is what we can start to try to piece together with this high complex granularity data set that is now being married to health outcomes, imaging, other biomarker data, and, and on. So that's really in the future, I think the transformative power of this technology is really not to just be a different blood pressure, you know, machine. It's really to accumulate this data set in it in an easy, relatively inexpensive, you know, and 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 in a way that you know millions and billions of people could use all throughout the world. That really gives us insights that we have never even seen before. Maybe we're not even imagining the questions that we can ask into this data set, but we're just starting that journey. That's truly remarkable, and I and I, I've been hearing a lot about you know AI. Is this a place where you know, that data set may be fed and then AI would be, you know, kind of looking through that to kind of help with those, predict those, some of those, like you're saying, potential outcomes. 
I think I think certainly there's a place for AI within within the product at some point. We're not sure exactly yet. I don't think anyone's really that sure about generative AI and where to put it into things. But but we certainly are considering it in some ways, um, probably more basic ways than 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 you know perhaps could could be envisioned. But but I think to make a more robust product experience, to make an iterative product, to make an engaging product, it would be great to have that interaction that only sort of an AI tool could provide using our data set and existing you know literature and science. Um, and then I think in the future, yes, I mean there there there's certainly possibilities to embed it in other in other ways. But we're still working through all those things. Amazing. Um, real quick, how can how can physicians, um, you know, really lead digital transformation, you know, from in where, where they're working? Obviously, you're a leader in this and in your role. So we'd love to just have you give that advice to our audience. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, I, I have in this last year and a half, you know, I've gone to all these different events, conferences, speaking engagements. Many of them are very expensive, flashy, big sort of events. And people go and they give a talk or they hear a talk and they post and social media and all this stuff. And I'm always struck by I'm sitting in the room in the audience, listening to this panel talk. And then I'm looking at them, the people on the panel, and they're very smart, they're very intelligent, they're very capable in their own ways. And looking at the audience also. And I, I, I look around and I say, well, who is actually a treating physician here? Who's, who's actually a practicing nurse? And it's and it's like less than five percent usually. And these are the these are the leaders of digital health. These are the leaders of companies. These are the leaders of healthcare transformation, so so to speak, the leaders of innovation in healthcare. But very few of them, if any, are actually doing the day to day work on the ground with a person, with a patient, with a staff, understanding like the real difficulties of practicing medicine. So I think it's crucial to have physician voices at that table because what I've learned is that, you know, I'm walking to these companies or have these meetings with whoever, uh, strategic partners, VCs, other companies within my company. And people will come up with some idea or some thought. And it's not to say they're always coming from a good place usually, but you just look at, you think about the idea and you say, yeah, in the practice of medicine in 2023 and for the foreseeable 10 to 20 years, that idea is never going to go anywhere because I know and any physician sitting in an office knows that's simply impractical and nobody's going to do that and there are no incentives aligned for that and people aren't going to change for those things. So it's very easy to sort of dispel those sort of um, flights of fancy or ideas. But at the same time, bring an innovative, you don't want to be a naysayer, and that's also a bad idea. So you bring your clinical judgment and say, well, that's a good idea, but to actually get that done and implement it and practice and actually make a difference to me and my patients and the nurses and the staff and everyone else in, involved in the day-to-day -day practice of healthcare, that idea needs these seven other things and cut out these four other things. And then that idea can actually work. So it's really bringing your insight and experience and skills into the room and saying, in the practice of medicine, I'm the expert. You're the expert. Your listeners are the experts. Bring them into the room. 
be in the room, get in the room. You know, that's really what I would say. And I think, you know, it's challenging, honestly, for, for a lot of physicians. You have to break your mold. You have to walk away maybe from certain things that you've done for a long time. You have to accept a lower salary oftentimes, you you know, and so not everyone can do that. But but if you can and if you're interested, the the desire for you to be there in the room and the value that you add is really you cannot underestimate it. And I think that's a that's a sometimes unfortunately I have heard from other physicians like that's a that's a failing on our side. We underestimate sometimes our own value to the to our own detriment in these sort of aspects. And and um and we're told that a lot. I, I also have felt that and it's like you don't have business experience. You don't have people experience. You don't have managing experience. You know what? That's BS. I'm going to call BS on that because you do. You have, if you run a practice, you have started a business. You have run that business. If you manage a team of physicians or a team of residents or fellows or nurses in a, in a hospital system, you have, you have managed a team and arguably in the most critical way possible, in the most high risk situation possible, in the most highly matrixed environment possible, and that's a hospital system. So you got to think about it in those ways and spin it in those ways and don't let other people say you haven't done that. And actually we all have. That I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, just hearing you say that, I hope it uh, gives you know, confidence to, to our audience and, and, and really resonates with them. Um, lastly, uh, Dr. Shaw, I just love to, you know, with that business, you know, hat on, how how can, you know, our physicians identify business opportunities within their their niche of medicine that they may be practicing? Well, first, I would say it doesn't have to be in your niche. So first, dispel that idea or a myth in your head. So you have a skill set, you may have a skill set in a, in a specific field of medicine, but that doesn't mean that you your skill set is not applicable in in a company that's doing something sort of tangential to your to your niche. It might be easier to find in your specialty, but doesn't not always. You know, as you think you see this in pharmaceutical companies all the time. You know, you see people working in pharmaceutical physicians working in pharmaceutical companies in you know on a on a on a drug or a medicine development that that affects, let's say, you know, the heart. But their training might be uh, nephrology, and and in a way, it's they have an internal medicine background. They have enough medicine background to understand clinical um, evidence generation. They're not practicing clinical medicine anymore, so you they still have a vast trove of information and knowledge that they can apply into that context. It doesn't have to be specific to their specialty. But beyond that, I mean, I think I would say. I think there's, I think what helped me at least, and I'll just use me as an example, is that I did a lot of exploration, you know, before I made any decision or, or thought about it, I probably talked to over a hundred different, hundred doctors in different, doing different things. And I probably maximized my use of LinkedIn to beyond its capacity, but I was shocked and pleasantly surprised that 95% of physicians that I reached out to sort of cold call responded and they and they said yes I'll, I'll help you out I'll give you 15 minutes of time I'll take that phone call no problem and they were really kind like irrespective of who they were because you know I think they had all done it themselves in the past so 
we have, there's this sort of camaraderie and an understanding that we have all been through a certain sort of rigor in our training and work and life and that is mutually respected. And I think that we're all open. So I do my best when people ping me on LinkedIn or email me or call me that I don't know who they are. I try to give them the same time because someone did it up for me at a, at a different time. So I think realizing that your network is much bigger than you think it is and much broader is the first step because then you can start asking those questions. So what does the chief medical officer at JP Morgan do? Sounds really cool. But then I talk to the person, I'm like, oh, I, uh, I can't do this. <laughs> this is not for me. So you cross it off. And that was the most helpful exercise is just crossing off the list. Do I want to be an analyst at investment banking? Cross that off. Do I want to be on the VC of some X, Y, and Z? Nope. So one after another, after another, I made, I had these exploratory conversations and I just started crossing things off. So then the list of things that are actually that you would want to look at becomes much more focused and you have more of an appreciation and understanding of what those mean and why you might like doing whatever it is. And then the last thing I would say is you can, we have a distinct advantage is that we can dip our toe and take a try. So you can easily start in a consulting role. You know, don't quit your day job. Don't stop practicing. Don't give that up if you don't, if you're not sure about it yet. Just dip your toe, do some consulting for six months or a year. Try it out. Even if something, an opportunity comes up, negotiate part-time. Say, I'll, I'll, I'll do this, but I'll only do it two days a week and I'm still gonna practice three days a week. So no, no loss. I mean, if it doesn't work out, if you don't like the team, if you're not sure about the product, if you don't know what they're doing and at the end of six, that six to nine months, you're like, this isn't for me. Just your, your practice is always gonna be there. We all know there is no shortage of patients. There's no shortage of clinical work. There will always be that to come, come back to if you, if you want to. Um, so if people view it as a risk uh, to, to leave or to do something different, the truth is you have an opportunity to try something different without giving up everything, you know, that you have now. You can try, you can, you have the best of both worlds. So remember that and, and then hopefully that gives some of your listeners a little bit of courage to look if they, if that's right for them. That, that is perfect advice and, and so great to hear from somebody so knowledgeable and accomplished as yourself. Um, Dr. Shaw, how can people, you know, learn more about um, Akita and, um, you know, anything else they might want to learn about that you talked about today? Yeah, so our website's a great place to start. It's actia.com, A-K-T-I-I-A.com. You can get on the mailing list. We'll just push, we push out updates, um, uh, especially for the U.S. listeners. And then uh, we're on all the social media channels, just at Actia Global. So that's all our social media channels. And then you can always, uh, you know, especially for your physician listeners, I'm always open on LinkedIn. Just find me on LinkedIn. We'll probably put the link in the show notes and feel free to contact me or just, you know, look at, look at what we, look at what we do. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaw. It's a pleasure having you on today. I appreciate your time and, and I hope you have a great one. Thank you very much, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you to all of our listeners. If you would like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And a big thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest, please go to www.pacificcompanies.com. Thank you.